Well, welcome to Harvest Decatur. My name's Tony Caffey. I'm the pastor here at Harvest, and we're going to turn our attention now in worship to God's Word. So if you would, take your Bibles with me. And let's turn for the last time to the Gospel of John. Today we're going to be finishing up this great book that we've been looking at for actually many years. I was a lot younger when we started this book. <laughs> and so it's a, it's a little sad that we're finishing up. I heard John MacArthur say this last week that uh, every time he finishes up a book of the Bible that he's preaching through, there's a sadness that comes over him because it, it's come to an end and he's learned so much. It's a bittersweet thing. Because we have, a, we have learned a lot in this book. We've learned a lot in our series, The Road to Resurrection. And today we finish out this great book and finish out our series in uh, John chapter 21. Now, we're also concluding what we started last week with this, what I'm calling the restoration of Peter. If you remember from last week in John 21, uh, Jesus saw Peter. Peter saw Jesus too. It was a truly joyous occasion. Jesus showed up again in Galilee in his resurrection body. And this time he was on the shores of Galilee. And Jesus told this exhausted group of fishermen who had fished all night long to cast their nets on the other side. Now, they didn't recognize Jesus, but for whatever reason, they obeyed Jesus. And when they did that, they brought in this massive haul of fish, 153 fish. And it's a marvel to see uh, what Jesus does, similar to what he did earlier in their ministry, three years earlier, when he called these men to be fishers of men. And Peter was so thrilled about what happened, so thrilled to finally realize that that's Jesus on the shoreline, that Peter didn't even wait to bring in the boat. He just launched himself into the lake and swam to Jesus as fast as he could. And what does Peter find on the shore as he encounters Jesus? What do the disciples find as well? What's Jesus doing there? He's cooking them breakfast. He's loving on them. I'm sure they're exhausted. I'm sure they're hungry. And there he is serving them, loving them uh, in his resurrection body. You know, this is, this is great because Jesus, you know, what has Jesus done in a few days just before this? He has conquered death. We've sung about this, right? He conquered sin, Jesus. And now, not only has he died as an atonement for our sin, he's been raised from the dead. He's in his resurrection body. There he is in all of his majesty. What's he doing for the disciples? Cooking them breakfast, serving them, loving them. It's a beautiful picture. And you might think that, okay, I guess Jesus has moved away from those problems that took place with Peter. I guess Jesus has moved past Peter's foibles. All of that has been forgotten. It seems as if Jesus has moved past that regrettable moment when a few days earlier, Peter denied that he even knew who Jesus was. But not so fast. Because Jesus has a few questions for Peter. And he also has some instructions as well before this book concludes. And I'll just tell you this morning, Harvest Decatur, that what Jesus says to Peter is just as instructive for us 2,000 years later as it was for Peter when Jesus first uttered these words. So I want us, as we finish up this book, as we look at the restoration of Peter, I want us to lean in, listen in, and apply God's word into our lives 
as we observe this interaction between Jesus and Peter. Can we do that, church? Y'all ready to go? Got your Bibles open, ready to study this morning? Take your notes with you as well, and here's our outline for today. In this passage, we're going to see four expectations of a committed Christ follower. Four expectations of a committed, I'm a Christ follower. I am. How about you? Are you a Christ follower? If you are a Christ follower, I mean, Jesus came to his disciples and he said, come follow me. You are part of this rich tradition, this rich heritage of Christ-loving, Christ-following disciples that goes all the way back to Peter and the original disciples. And for 2,000 years, people have been following Christ. That's you, and that's me. And there are some things here that Jesus delineates for Peter that Christ's followers do. These are some expectations of us if we are going to be committed Christ followers. Here's the first expectation. It should not surprise you in any way. There needs to be love for Christ among committed Christ followers. If you're following Christ because of obligation instead of love, you're not doing it for the right reasons. There needs to be love for Christ. Verse 15 tells us this follow along with me if you would in your bibles john says when they had finished breakfast jesus cooking for all the disciples jesus said to simon peter simon son of john this has kind of a formal feel to it instead of simon peter simon son of john this is like you know when a mom talks to their children and says you know thomas rupert joseph what are you doing over there it's very formal Maybe not that angry, though. Jesus says, Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Do you, Peter? And, and you might wonder, well, what are the these in verse 15? Are these the, the disciples at breakfast? You know, and that's possible. That's one view. You know, Peter was so self-assured before Jesus' death and resurrection. Peter was, you know, he had said, matter-of-factly, even if they all fall away, Jesus, even if everybody runs away from you, I will not fall away. But Peter had fallen away. Peter did deny the Lord, and his love for Jesus had been compromised. So now Jesus is asking him, Simon, do you, do you really love me more than these? Have you been humbled now, Peter? Now, that view is possible. I actually think that something else is going on here. I'm more inclined to see the these here as the, you know, the, the, the fishing paraphernalia that's now on the shore, the boat and the nets and the fish, and that whole lifestyle that Jesus had called Peter out of. Do you love me more than these, Peter? Let me paraphrase here. Do you love me more than fishing? Is your identity found in me, not in this profession of yours, in this thing that you do? You know, I, I, I told you to come to Galilee and wait for me. And what do I find when I come here? You're out there fishing. You're going back to that profession that I called you out of, Peter. Do you love me more than fishing? And watch how Peter responds. Peter says to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Now, some of this, you know, some of the men in this room, some of the men in our community and in America today, they might be a little uncomfortable here talking about love for Jesus or love from one man to another. Is it okay as a man to express your love for Jesus? Is it now? Can I get some answers from the men in the room? <laughs> yeah, it is. Is it okay for one man to express his love for another man? In this case, the God-man, Jesus Christ? 
Yes, it is. I don't ascribe to that notion that men can't show love to other men or men can't show love to Jesus. That is actually a false view of masculinity. That is actually a false view of manhood. It's absolutely okay. In fact, it's expected here. And Peter, you know, Peter, I'll just tell you, men in this room, none of you in this room, we got some manly guys in this room, none of you is, are as manly as Peter was. Peter was a big, tough, strong, burly fisherman. Jesus says, go get those fish, Peter. And Peter goes into the boat by himself and pulls out 153 strong, fit, big fish. That's how strong he was. I don't think any of the men in this room could do that. Maybe, maybe Ian McKenzie. He's probably the only one. <laughs> so here's, here's Peter, this big, strong guy, and he's, he's affirming his love. Yes, I love you. And Peter actually says it better than that. Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And that's a good answer here. I know that you've probably heard this before. Peter uses a different Greek word than Jesus does. He uses the word phileo versus agapao. But both of those words are powerful affirmations of genuine love. What's more significant here is the humility that Peter demonstrates. He's not self-assured anymore. He's Christ-assured. He's not arrogant here. He's actually affirming Christ's sovereignty and Jesus's knowledge. Jesus, you know me better than I know myself. You know where the fish are in the sea. I can't catch fish without your help. You know the truth about my love for you. Now, how does Jesus respond to that? Does Jesus say, boy, Peter, I've been waiting for that. Does Jesus, you know, tussle Peter's hair? Good boy, Peter, way to go. Now, instead, Jesus gives Peter instructions. Instead, Jesus says, okay, Peter, I want you to live out your love for me. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. Jesus has already called Peter to be a fisher of men. Now, Jesus is calling this fisher of fish to be a shepherd of sheep. Feed my lambs, Peter. Take care of my flock. There's this really moving scene in Matthew chapter 9 when the crowds of Galilee are thronging to Jesus and these these Galileans you have to understand had been oppressed by bad leaders mistreated by their leaders and in Matthew 9 it says this you can read this on the screen it says when Jesus saw the crowds he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd and then Jesus says this you know Jesus is to become their shepherd, yes, but he's also, to, he's also looking to gather other shepherds with him to help him in this shepherding task, under shepherds, if you would. And Jesus is never afraid to mix metaphors or to combine agricultural imagery. So Jesus says after that, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. That is a great passage, Harvest Decatur. Our name as a church is partly derived from that verse. Jesus is calling for shepherds, fellow shepherds. He's calling for harvesters. Come, work alongside of me. Look at the people who need help, who need shepherding. Look at the work that needs to be done. And what happens right after this in Matthew 10, that's Matthew 9, that's the end of Matthew 9. What happens right after that is that Jesus calls these 12 disciples to come alongside of him and help him. And these are the disciples that are going to go into all the world and spread the gospel. And you know who the first person is on that list of 12? I bet you could guess. Who do you think is the first person on that list? That's Peter. It's always Peter. 
He's always at the top of the list. And there's this sense, I think, that Jesus, Jesus shows up in Galilee. Peter's leading, but he's not leading the right direction. He's leading the people to go fish, go back to their old profession. And Jesus is like, look, Peter, I called you out of that profession. It's okay to fish, but that's not what you're doing here. You're, you're stepping out of this duty that I've called you to. I've called you to be a harvester. I've called you to be a shepherd. So, Peter, I love you, man. I know you love me. Get to work. Start laboring on my behalf. Feed my sheep. Are you all with me? This is love in action. This is not love as some, you know, ethereal reality or some emotional conviction. This is love in action. Peter doing what Jesus called him to do. Now, in the Bible, if you want to emphasize something, you say it twice. If you want to emphasize something, you say it twice. You know, Jesus repeatedly says, truly, truly, I say to you, not just truly, but truly, truly. So Jesus has already questioned Peter once and given him this command. Now for emphasis, he does it a second time. Verse 16, he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, there's that formal uh, language again. Do you love me? And Peter, again, with humility and asserting Jesus' sovereignty, says, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. Go ahead and write this down as number two in your notes. For committed Christ followers, first of all, there's a love for Christ. But that love for Christ is going to spill out in work for Christ. Work for Christ. I read a book a few weeks ago called The Shepherd's Life. It's a book written by a modern-day shepherd in northern England and how he shepherds his sheep. And one of the things that James Rebanks, the author of that book, says is that shepherding is not, you know, the picture-perfect postcard existence that many people think it is. He says it's hard, muddy, difficult, dangerous work. And Rebanks tells the story about these dogs that came to his farm once. See, what people do is they come from the city and they take their big domesticated dogs into northern England, into the hills, and they just take them off the leash thinking that these dogs will be fine. But, you know, when they take their dogs off the leash, the dogs just go native. And they get that smell of sheep and they start to chase and even kill some of his sheep. And so he tells this story, Rebanks does, about these two dogs, this owner brought him up to the, the hillside and unleashed him and these dogs started chasing his sheep and actually what the dogs would do is they'll bite off the sheep's ears before they eventually kill them and it's a bloody mess and you know sheep sheep are vulnerable sheep will run for a while but after a while they'll just lay down and give themselves up and so rebanks he comes to these two bloodthirsty dogs that are attacking his sheep bitten off some of the ears of his sheep and he grabs these dogs by the scruff and he's holding them up, trying to keep them from killing the sheep, killing him. They're just, you know, snarling and crazy. And then the owner shows up who unleashed them. And he's, he's begging for the lives of these dogs. Because he knows that you unleash your dogs out there. If they attack sheep, the shepherd can kill them in a moment, you know, for doing that. So here's, here's Rebanks. He's got these two dogs by the scruff. He's got bloody sheep all over the place. He's got this owner begging for the life of his dogs. And he doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know whether to kill the dogs, give them back to this owner and forgive him and then, you know, assess the damage to his sheep. And as I was reading this, I was like, yeah, that's, that's like shepherding in the church. It's not as, 
that's a pretty good analogy of the hard work and the dedication and the confusion sometimes that you're under. As I read this book, there was just analogy. Elders, you should read this book. Analogy after analogy, analogy. Yeah, that's kind of like it is. Yeah, that's kind of like it is. Nobody puts a picture like that on a postcard and sends it. Nobody puts that on a Thomas Kincaid painting of sheep and shepherding. And you know, I, Peter, Peter understands this. That's probably why he's a fisherman, not a shepherd. And he knows the hard work and the task of shepherding sheep. And so when Jesus says, feed my lambs, Peter knows there's a cost associated with that. Do you love me, Peter? Do you now? Work for me. Labor for me. Do the hard work of shepherding my, they're not your sheep, Peter. They're my sheep, says Jesus. I'm I'm the chief shepherd. But you're my under-shepherd, and I have called you to work under me to feed my sheep. You know, later in life, Peter understood this. Later in his life, when he wrote the epistle of 1 Peter, he says this. This is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. You can read this on the screen, 1 Peter chapter 5. This is Peter talking to other shepherds, other elders. He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Peter eventually learned how to do this, learned how to obey Jesus, learned how to feed the sheep, and even taught other elders, including us 2,000 years later, how to shepherd the flock of God. So two times now, two times Jesus has questioned Peter's love for him. Do you love me? Yes. Feed my lambs. Do you love me, Peter? Yes, Lord. Shepherd my sheep. Tend my sheep. You know, when when you repeat something twice, that's for emphasis. When you repeat it three times, now you're trying to make a point, a life-changing point. And so, verse 17, Jesus said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? How many times did Peter disown Jesus? Three times, right? You think that maybe that's in the back of Jesus' mind as he questions him now three times? I think so. And look how Peter's response. Peter was grieved by this. This threefold question because he said to him the third time, do you love me? Maybe this triggers in Peter's mind his, his three denials of Jesus. I mean, we've already seen about the charcoal fire. I told you all about that several times already. How, you know, when Jesus was in the courtyard of the high priest, high priest there, was a, there was this charcoal fire. And then when Peter jumps out of the boat, swims to Jesus, there's a charcoal fire there. Jesus is cooking the fish on. A little trigger to remind him about what he did previously. Whatever the case, now as Jesus for the third time questions him, it says that Peter was grieved by this. This word for grieved It's the word lupeo in Greek. It means to become sad or sorrowful or distressed. It's the same word that's used to describe the disciples when Jesus says, one of you will betray me. Jesus says, one of you will betray me. And they were, I mean, they were, they were distressed. They were paranoid even. They repeatedly asked Jesus, is it I, Lord? Is it I? Am I the one that's, you know, this, this is that word, lupeo. Peter was grieved. Peter was distressed. He was wounded. He was hurt. Did Jesus mean to hurt him? Did Jesus mean to wound him here? 
might say, why don't you just let off, Jesus? Why don't you just cut him some slack? You know, Peter's not the sharpest knife in the drawer. He needs some help here. Jesus means to wound him. Sometimes we need to be wounded. Jesus is a surgeon. He's not a butcher. He wounds to heal. He's trying to humble this self-assured person. He wants Peter to stop being so self-directed. And that, that wound is meant to heal him. We were talking about this at small group this last week. And I've heard this said before. I said this at small group. All great leaders walk with a limp. Y'all heard that before? Peter needed to be wounded. He needed to learn the weakness that he had in himself in order to be Christ assured. And before he can be used powerfully in Christ's kingdom, and Peter was powerfully used in Christ's kingdom, before he could do that, he needed to know his own weakness and his need for Christ. And watch how Peter responds to this. In his hurt, look what he says despite his grief. It's, it's great. And Peter said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Even in his woundedness, Peter affirms Jesus' omniscience. Lord, you know everything. You know me better than I know myself. You know that I love you. So now does Jesus let off? Does, does Jesus cut him some slack? Does Jesus, you know, give him an attaboy? Attaboy, Peter. Does Jesus restore him? Well, sort of. Jesus said to him a third time, all right, Peter, feed my sheep. Yes, Peter is restored. Jesus gives Peter a high calling. It's a privilege, it's a privilege to serve as one of Jesus' shepherds. You're back, Peter. You're back doing the thing that I called you to do at first. Peter affirms that high calling, by the way, in his epistle in 1 Peter. It's a hard work shepherding sheep. It's a difficult work feeding Christ's sheep, but it's a good work. It's a high calling. And Jesus has restored him to that task. Now, some of you to this, you might say, okay, Pastor Tony, well, I'm, I'm not a shepherd, literally or figuratively. I'm not a shepherd here. So, so what, what does this passage mean for me? What, how do I apply this into my own life? Well, even if you're not a shepherd, you can still feed the sheep. Y'all with me? In fact, one of the things that Paul stresses in his letters is that every Christian has the Holy Spirit inside of them. Do you have the Holy Spirit inside of you? If you're a believer, you do. And God has deposited inside of you as part of that Holy Spirit infilling a, a gift, even multiple gifts, the Holy Spirit, that are be, to be used for the for the kingdom of God that are to be used to feed the sheep, that are to be used, this is Paul's language, to, to, to edify the body of Christ. All of us are members of the body of Christ and have a role in edifying the body of Christ. Peter himself says this in 1 Peter 4, verse 10. You can read this on the screen. As each of you has received a gift, not just the elders, as each of you, each of you harvest to cater, each of you in this room has received a gift if you are saved. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks, if you have a speaking gift, if you talk as part of what the Holy Spirit does to you, teaching, encouraging, instructing, 
Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, if you have a service gift, service, hospitality, whatever it might be, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Here's the application, church. Whatever gift you have, however God has empowered you by the Holy Spirit, you use that gift for the body of Christ. You feed the sheep. We're all in this together. We all work for Christ. We like to say this at Harvest Decatur. How many times have I said this from a pulpit? A mature disciple worship, walks, and works for Christ. It's a good thing to work for Christ. If you have a gift of teaching here in our church, you use that gift. If you have a gift of exhortation and encouragement, you use that gift in the body of Christ. If you have a gift of serving, of hospitality, of helps, you use that gift in the body of Christ. And we all feed the sheep. We all feed Jesus' sheep. Listen, let's, let's just imagine for a moment that Jesus came through that door right now. Jesus comes through that door, I'm sitting down, all right? All right, Jesus, the floor is yours. And let's say Jesus came up here and, and he pressed us like he pressed Peter with those same questions. Do you love me, Harvest Decatur? Do you love, what if he went row by row and named all of you by name? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? What would your answer be? Do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than your family? Do you love me more than your job? Do you love me more than your recreation? Do you love me more than your hobbies? Do you love me more than your stuff? Do you love me more than these? I hope our answer would be yes, Lord. You know that we love you. And then let's say that Jesus, we're all convicted, right? And let's say Jesus added to that question. All right, are you feeding my sheep? Are you demonstrating your love for me by loving the body of Christ, by feeding them, by serving them, by using that gift that I put inside of you for the edification of the church? How would you answer that? Look, here's what I'm getting at. A committed Christ follower loves the Lord Jesus Christ. And a committed Christ follower works for Jesus Christ. Our love for him cannot just be lip service. There has to be action associated with it. Those affections for the Lord, if they're genuine, are going to spill out in service for him. And by the way, it cannot be just work without affection either. That's not better. For, don't forget the, the story that is told about Mary and Martha. It can't just be, you know, work without affection for God. It can't either be work in order to earn God's love for us. That doesn't work. It ha Why do we love Jesus? Because he first loved us. Why do we serve Jesus? Because he ser served us first and died for us. So because we love him, and as a, an expression of our love for him, we feed his sheep. Everybody with me? Have I beat that horse significantly dead here? I know I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here this morning. We, we got servants here at Harvest Decatur. Keep serving. Don't quit on that. Stay committed to, to Jesus and to his sheep and express your love for the Lord by loving his church. Let's go back to the narrative here. Jesus isn't done with Peter. Still a few more things he needs to teach him. 
So Jesus says this in verse 18. Follow along with me in your Bibles here. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, Peter, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and, and another will dress you and carry you wherever, where you do not want to go. That's interesting. And then John says this. This he said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Now, this is, this is a really cryptic statement that Jesus makes to Peter. And I wonder how much Peter really grasped of what Jesus was saying here. Thankfully, John gives us a little help in understanding what is essentially a prophecy about Peter's death. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, when you were young, Peter, when you were young, you used to dress yourself, you used to walk wherever you wanted, you used to go fishing whenever you wanted to go fishing. But when you were older, when you, when you came into the fold, so to speak, now that you're older and wiser, you will go wherever I want you to go. You will be led by me. And actually, part of my leading you will lead you all the way to your death. There's actually a double entendre in this statement here, in this prophecy, because the statement, you will stretch out your hands, that was a euphemism in the first century for crucifixion. So what Jesus is saying here is that you will be led by me, I'm in charge of your life, and I will lead you to death. A death that will actually glorify God, because it's like my death, but you will be crucified. That's what's in store for you. By the way, just so you know, John wrote this book some, sometime in the 80s, AD, and Peter, according to church history, died in the 60s, 60s AD, and uh, probably 67, 68 AD, he was put to death by the emperor Nero, so John, when he wrote this book, he already knew of Peter's death. He already knew how he died. And you know, church history records as well that Peter, when he was sent to death, he was crucified upside down by request because he didn't feel worthy to, to die in the same way that Jesus did. That may or may not be true. But it's clear here that John saw a prophecy of future crucifixion for Peter when Jesus told him these things on the shore of Galilee. And so Jesus is saying here, you're going to die. You're going to follow me. You're going to give up your life. You're going to follow me, and you're going to die. And then, what's he say at the, verse at the end of verse 19? Follow me. Come do this. Hmm, let me get this straight. So I'm giving up ownership of my life. I'm going to let you lead me. And then, eventually, I'm going to die a gruesome, horrible death just like Jesus did. Okay, sign me up. I'm ready for this. And you know, just a few days before that, Peter ran away from Jesus. He thought he had been exposed. He thought he might die with Jesus right there. And fear got a hold of him, and he denied Jesus even before a little girl and ran away. Now, Jesus is basically telling him, Peter, go feed my sheep. It's going to be hard. It's going to be laborious. Oh, and by the way, you're going you're to give up ownership of your life, and you're going to die a gruesome death. What does Peter do? What does Peter do? Does he run? You know what Peter does. He embraces it. He embraces it. Peter, Peter, if he was here right now, let's say he showed up and walked through those doors and came up to the pulpit, you know what he would tell you to? I'd do it all over again if I had an opportunity. Following Jesus is that good, even if you die a gruesome death on the cross. And Peter did it. He did it. He embraced this calling that Jesus gave him. And he's about to get an upgrade big time too when the Holy Spirit comes. 
He's going to get even more bold for Jesus. Even more bold as a shepherd of sheep. Go ahead and write this down as number three in your notes. Here's the third expectation of a committed Christ follower. There's also sacrifice for Christ. There's sacrifice for Christ. Look, you may not have to go to the cross literally as a follower of Jesus, as a committed follower of Jesus, but you will go to the cross metaphorically. You will take up your cross and follow Jesus if you are a Christ follower. And you will sacrifice something in your following of Jesus. You will. And if you haven't yet, get ready. Because there's no such thing as committed Christ following without sacrifice without giving up your, your idols, without giving up those things that you hold on to tighter than you hold on to Jesus. And Jesus is calling us to a place of self-sacrifice. And it's a good thing. Like I said, Peter would tell you to do it, do it. It's worth it to live as Christ and to die as gain, Paul says. And that's true. You know, for the most part in this conversation, Peter's, Peter's actually been pretty admirable. He's humble. He's expressing his love for Jesus. He's not doing anything in an arrogant or self-assured way. Peter's come a long way since his denial of Jesus just a few days before this. But Peter's about to show some weakness here, okay? Which, oddly, is, is kind of encouraging to me. Peter, even with all his maturity, he's, he's not perfect. And God can use him despite his imperfections. <laughs> Watch what happens next. This is actually kind of humorous so verse 20 Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and it said Lord who is it that is going to betray you I guess at some point in the conversation Jesus took Peter for a walk and they were on the shore of this beach and and when Jesus told Peter about this gruesome death that he was going to die, when he prophesied that, John was following in earshot of them. And so Peter turns around and saw this disciple whom Jesus loved, you know, John, right? The author of this book following him. In verse 21, when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, hey, Jesus, what about this guy? What's going to happen to him? I can't help but think that there's this like, competitive rivalry thing going on between John and Peter. It's been going on for a while. Peter's like, so I'm going to die a gruesome death, huh, Jesus? So, so I'm going to have to die, follow you, give up everything, follow you. What about this guy? Is he going to die a gruesome death too? You know, is he going to get it better than me? Is he going to live longer than me? Tell me what his story is, Jesus. Maybe it wasn't like that. Maybe Peter was just being inquisitive. But I'm actually informed by Jesus' response to Peter that, Maybe Peter had false motives for asking this question. Because how does Jesus answer his question? Jesus answers his question by saying, Nanya. <laughs> I guess y'all have heard that before. Nanya business, Peter. Jesus said to him, If it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. You follow me, Peter. There's this great scene in C.S. Lewis's The Horse and His Boy when Aslan, the Christ figure in that book, he speaks to the young boy Shasta. Uh, Shasta's the main protagonist in the book, and he's 
Uh, Aslan's explaining his sovereign activities over Shasta's life, and he tells him, I was the one who drove the jackals away while you slept, Shasta. I was the one who comforted you among the house of the dead. I was the one that propels the boat, that propelled the boat that rescued you when you were a baby. So Shasta's listening to this and listening to Aslan talk, and he doesn't quite trust Aslan yet. And as he's thinking through the lion's sovereign claims, he suddenly asks, so then it was you, Aslan, who wounded Erevis? Erevis is the other protagonist in the story, the young girl who accompanied Shasta on her journey, on his journey. And to that question, Aslan says, yes, it was I. And then Shasta, thinking this through, says, what for? Why did you wound her? And the lion, in response to that, says, child, I am telling you your story, not hers. I tell no one any story but his own. And I can't help but think that C.S. Lewis had this little situation between Peter and John and Jesus in his mind when he wrote this. Peter wants to compare notes. Peter wants to know what's going to happen with this guy. What about this guy, Jesus? This guy that loves you and you love more than you love me. And Jesus says, what is that to you, Peter? You're on a need-to-know basis, Peter. You don't need to know that. I've told you your story. You follow me. You surrender fully to me, and don't worry about this guy. Don't compare yourself with other people. Don't compare yourself with John. Actually, I love in the book of Acts, maybe there was this rivalry thing, but in the book of Acts, Peter and John are working together and doing great things together, and it's like they're the best of friends. That's great. There's not even that sense of rivalry at all between them in the book of Acts. And, you know, John Piper says this about this verse. He says, that's the way that we sinners are wired. Compare, compare, compare. What about this guy? What about her, Jesus? What about this person over here? Compare, compare, compare. We crave to know how we stack up in comparison to others. There's some kind of high. If we can just find someone less effective than we are. That is so true. That is so sinfully true about too many of us. Even my own heart. So listen, Harvesticator, God is not looking at you. I want this to be a sense of comfort for you. God is not looking at you and comparing, comparing. Well, how do they stack up against that person? How does she stack up to him? How does she stack up to her? Each of you is a unique child of God. God has created you and equipped you and empowered you for your story, what he wants you to do. Don't worry about other people in the sense of trying to compare yourself with them. You just do what God has called you to do. If you have a wife and five kids, praise the Lord, and you do what God has called you to do. If you have a husband and no kids, praise the Lord, you do what God has called you to do. If God has called you to a life of singleness, like he called Peter, uh, sorry, like he called the Apostle Paul, like, like Jesus himself lived, praise the Lord, you follow Jesus, you do what Jesus has called you to do. And don't worry about comparing yourself with others. There's something powerful that John's conveying here as we, you know, we need to not compare ourselves with others. There's also something practical that he's addressing here. Supposedly there was this weird rumor that circulated in the churches that, you know, John wouldn't die until Jesus came back. You know how rumors spread and, oh yeah, John's going to live forever until Jesus comes back. And I, I guess... That rumor got started by a misunderstanding of what Jesus said here. Jesus said, if it's my will, 
Verse 22, if it's my will that John remain until I come, what is that to you? Don't worry about him. You follow me. So in order to clarify that statement, John says in verse 23, so the spread, this saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not yet to die, was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? So just for the record, I want to be clear about this. John did die. He did die before Jesus returned, before Jesus returns. And here we are, 2,000 years later, still awaiting Jesus' return, right? Still feeding sheep, still following Jesus, still loving Jesus, still working for Jesus, still testifying about what Jesus has done for us, his death that paid for our sin. I've got one final point from this message, and it, it doesn't revolve around Peter. Peter, his interaction with Jesus pretty much over at verse 22. The final point centers on the other main character in this passage, the Apostle John. And to be fair, this point is more of an inference than it is a clear statement from Jesus to us. Jesus calls us as Christ followers to love Christ, to work for Christ, to sacrifice to Christ, for, to follow Christ. Here's one more thing, and it's what John does in this book from John 1 all the way to John 21. And it's witness for Christ. Witness for Christ. John says in verse 24, this is the disciple, this, the one whom Jesus loved, John. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. In other words, the guy who Peter was talking about, disciple whom Jesus loved, John says, that's me. I'm him, he's me. I'm bearing witness about these things, and we know that this testimony is true. We just sang that song, Speak What is True. I asked uh, Ryan to sing that song just as a preparation for God's word. Speak what is true. Speak it over us. Help us to apply it. What does John say? My testimony here is true. I'm an eyewitness to these things. I saw these things. Every single thing I'm conveying here in this gospel, in the gospel of John, is literally gospel truth. Because I was one of Jesus' disciples, and I saw it firsthand. And then John says this. This is how he closes the book. It's a fascinating way to close this book. It says, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written? I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Is that hyperbole? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe not. I'm sure there were thousands, maybe, maybe millions of amazing things that happened in Jesus' presence that John could have put in this gospel. I can't wait to pull John aside in eternity and say, can you tell me some of those things that you, you know, cut out of the book? Some of those things that Jesus did? And I can only imagine the agonizing dilemmas that John had in writing this gospel. Should I tell this story? Should I tell that story? Should I keep it succinct? We know that the Holy Spirit had a role in that, right? And every single thing that John does here, his ultimate goal with this gospel, God, the Holy Spirit's ultimate goal with this gospel, it was not, I want you all to hear me on this, it was not to just tell some interesting stories about Jesus. It wasn't just to, you know, 
convey a few fun facts about Jesus for us. Every single thing written in this gospel is purposeful, is meaningful. For what? What's John's goal? What's the Holy Spirit's goal with this book? Y'all know now, I've read this several times in our series. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, so that you may believe that Jesus is Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's why John wrote this book. He's a witness. He's testifying to you about what Jesus did. You know what? That's what committed Jesus followers do. John's a committed Jesus follower. What's he doing? He's witnessing. Committed Christ followers. They love Christ. They work for Christ. They sacrifice for Christ. And they witness for Christ. They witness for Christ. Speaking of witnessing, do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Do you love him like Peter loves him? Have you by faith embraced Jesus Christ's death upon the cross for your sin and his resurrection from the dead, conquering sin, conquering death in your life. Do you believe these things? John wrote this 2,000 years ago because he loves Jesus and he loves you and he wants you to have life, eternal life. I want you to have that too. In fact, let's bow in a word of prayer. We're going to take communion in just a few moments. Let's bow our hearts before the Lord. Let's bow our heads before the Lord right now. I know most of you in this room. I recognize most of you, but there are a few faces I don't recognize. We have some Youngsters in the crowd as well, some fourth through sixth graders. I love Jesus and I love you. And I'm called to feed the sheep. And I'm called like Peter to be a fisher of men. And if you're here this morning and you don't have life in his name, you don't have assurance of salvation, you don't have eternal life, you can have that. This is how Paul says it in Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. So if that's you this morning, 
If you're here, if you wandered into this congregation, this service, unsaved, lacking eternal life, lacking saving faith, then right now, in the quietness of your own soul, communicate to the Lord. I believe Jesus. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. I'm separated from a holy God. But I believe that you died for my sins to make me righteous in God's sight. And I believe that you were raised from the dead. And even now you were raised from the dead and you're coming back again. Lord, again, we want to say thank you for your word. Thank you specifically for John's gospel and what's written here. The work that he did to testify to the life and death of Jesus, our Savior, and the resurrection too. And Lord, I know that the majority of the people in this room, we believe some have believed for many years. And Lord, as we enter into a time of communion now, as a symbol of our faith, receive this worship. We express our love for you and our gratitude by taking these elements and remembering your death. Lord, there may be somebody in this room for the first time today who has given themselves to you that have believed for the first time. And if that's the case, Lord, allow them this morning to take communion for the first time as a believer, as a follower of Jesus. I pray this in your name. Amen.